special thank you as always to Alex and the entire committee for setting everything up. Special thank you to Jonathan this week for schlepping and bringing the sushi. Special thank you to Michal for being the captain of the uh, entire endeavor. And a special thank you to Tor Anytime who shares this shear with many people across the country and uh, throughout the world. The topic this evening is the power of love. Emily Dickinson said in her famous quote, All I know of love is that love is all there is. From a Torah standpoint, we know love is very important in life. It's something we all crave, we all need. The, uh, the goal of this evening is to explore this powerful yet mystical phenomenon and hopefully clarify the, the Torah's view on love in contrast to the, uh, the prevalent view we find in Western civilization. That's the goal of this evening. Try to define in a clear, user-friendly way what love is, how can we get more of it, and how can we give more of it. There's something I like to refer to as emotional photosynthesis. We all learned in, the, in grade school that photosynthesis is how the, the plant lives and thrives and absorbs sunlight, and then the light is turned into energy. Light is something that sustains all life on this planet. All things need energy to grow. We get energy from the food we eat, we as human beings. However, plants get energy from light, and through the process of photosynthesis, they're able to, to, uh, to utilize that light and transform it into energy. Every breath we take, living here on planet Earth, as we breathe in oxygen, we're breathing in oxygen that doesn't only come from trees, but also 50 to 85% of the oxygen that we need to survive comes from the ocean. Plant life in the ocean is actually a major source of our survival as human beings. So when we speak about photosynthesis in the physical term, we also think about light as the, the source of love, the source of vitality. We need love, and therefore that energizes us. There are studies that show that love is not just a necessity, psychologically speaking, or emotionally speaking, but even physically speaking. I'll share with you two quick studies. One is... Um, from Harvard in the 1950s, the early 1950s, they took 126 healthy Harvard University students and they asked them the following question. Please grade your relationship with your parents and you have four options. Option number one is very close. Number two is warm and friendly. Number three is tolerant. And number four, strained and cold. They followed these students for 35 years, and they saw something remarkable. Putting aside levels of stress or anxiety or other psychological issues, they found that physically speaking, the people when they were 18, 19, 20 years old, that said their relationship with their parents was either very close or warm and friendly, were substantially more healthy than the people who said their relationship was tolerant or strained and cold. 
So the love that we're able to infuse into a child, and it's a very scary thing to think about, that's a major responsibility as a parent, but the love we're infusing in a child in their younger years can make a massive difference, not just on the person they are, but on their physical health and well-being. That's one particular study. There's a second study as well that uh, took place with students at Johns Hopkins University. This was gathering information from over 1,100 students, again trying to ascertain their relationship with their parents, and they would do research and, and, and ask questions and get medical records 30, 40, and sometimes 50 years later, and again they have the same exact result. They concluded that parental love seems to act as a buffer against later life illnesses. They speculated that the foundation of loving parental relationship helps to lessen the negative impact of stress later on in life. It can protect the immune system and strengthen the desire to live and heal. So we desperately need love. And the question I'd like to explore is, what is love and how do we get it and how do we give it? I think the best way to, uh, to go about doing this, it's a massive subject, and there's so much to get into, and we have limited time. I'd like to address the question, do we, as Jews, believe in love at first sight? Is that a, is that a Torah principle? Love at first sight. So on one hand, you would answer, yeah, it's in the Parsha. This is the Parsha where we learn about love at first sight. Let's read together. Yaakov comes to the well. The well was the, uh, the substitute for the bar in those days, the place to meet somebody, Lahavdil. And he's speaking to the shepherds. He sees that they're just hanging out and they're relaxing. They're somewhat lazy. So, as he's speaking to them, and Rachel comes with the sheep, that belonged to her father, Kiroahi. She was a shepherdess. And when Yaakov saw Rachel, the daughter of Lovin, who was the brother of his mother, and the sheep of Lovan, the brother of his mother, the Yigash Yaakov, Yaakov approached the well, the Yogel Esa Evan and he pushed aside this massive stone from on top of the, the water area. And he gave to drink the, the flock of Lovan. Again, for the third time it mentions the brother of his mother. And this is something that's very surprising. You would not assume uh, Ben Torah and Abbas Yisrael the Yishak Yaakov the Rachel, he kisses Rachel. The Yisa is Kola and he he screams out and he cries. When you think of them sitting there, you know, forty years later, talking to their children, what was like the first time you guys met? What was it like? <laughs> well, actually, it was pretty intense. Your father saw me and he screamed and he cried and he kissed me, and <clears throat> but he seemed like a nice fellow. If, if you read these three verses without having the, the insight of Torah Shabal Peh, without having any Mesorah or tradition, 
you would read it in the following way. It's a romantic story of a young couple. Yaakov, in the middle of speaking to these shepherds, he's caught off guard by the beauty of, of this young lady walking towards him. And when he sees Rachel, then the scene goes into slow motion, and there's powerful music in the background, and you see Yaakov stand up and slowly go over to the rock and with the force push it off based on his, his tremendous taiva, his desire for Rachel. And then he goes up to her like the damsel in distress, and they kiss, Shalom Aleichem, my name is Yaakov. That's what we would have thought by reading this Pesukim at face value. However, that doesn't seem to be uh, very logical. We do know Yaakov Avinu. We know that he is one of the three Ovos, one of the greatest prophets ever to live. The Merkava, the, the great mystical chariot of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, is made up of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. He's a man on, on a madrega, on a level of spirituality. If we would come within 400 feet of him, we would probably just feel this, this overwhelming awe. I can't get any closer because he's too intense. So likely that's not what's going on over here. What is going on? And why does it say three times that she was the daughter of Lovan, who was the brother of his mother, the brother of Yaakov's mother? Comes along the Rebbe in the early part of the 1300s. He says, The Torah has to say many times that Lavan was the brother of his mother. Lahoros to teach us. Don't think that Yaakov was inspired because he was moved by the beauty of this young lady he never met before. Don't think, says the Rebbe that he had some kind of physical attraction to Rachel, and that was the, the, the source of his strength. The Torah is telling us by saying three times, Lavan, she was the daughter of Lavan, who was the brother of his mother. He was doing it for the love of his mother. He was doing it out of a sense of respect, and a sense of love and loyalty. This is a family member. This is my mother's brother. I want to do everything I can. That gave him that added chizik. That gave him the strength. It was not coming from a lust or a physical desire. The Malbim echoes the Rebbe Bechaya. The Malbim comes along in the 1800s and he says, similar idea, Don't make the mistake that Yaakov was inspired by Rachel because she was beautiful. Rather, there is Ora Robo Ruach Gvura, there was this burst of strength that came upon him, that he was able to move aside the rock and we're told he didn't have to push that hard. He was so inspired, he went up to that rock and just moved it away. But again, what was that based on? Achiyimo, for the love and the respect and, and, and the loyalty he had for his mom. We always hear stories of somebody trapped under a car, you know, a little boy is trapped under a car, and the mother who weighs 120 pounds is somehow able to lift up 
tons and tons of weight just to save her son. And these things happen. And there's a whole study of, of how it works and you know, if, if you don't have that strength naturally, how does it come upon you? But it seems to be that's what was going on with Yaakov, but it wasn't based on any physical attraction to Rachel. The truth is, when you look into the, the history of Western civilization and analyze our view, not our, the Torah worlds, but our, America's view of love, you'll find something radically different than we find in the Torah world. I have here a quote from Shakespeare, Midsummer Night's Dream. And he has the famous line, Love looks not with eyes, but with the mind. And therefore winged Cupid painted blind. So one of the, the things that I hated most about high school was trying to interpret Shakespeare. What a waste of time. Who cares what he meant? <laughs> However, this is a famous line, love lo looks not with the eyes, meaning to say, love is not logical, love is not based on seeing someone's value or understanding them, but with the mind, rather love is just imagination. And that's why the, wings, uh, the winged Cupid is blind. There's no rhyme or reason to love, it just happens. Cupid, we know, is the god of desire, He's the son of the love goddess Venus and the god of war, Mars. Again, something that we've studied in school that makes absolutely no sense. I remember in sixth grade, we had a whole textbook on Greek mythology. And of all the things a child needs to know growing up, who cares which god was which? We don't believe in that, right? So that's Shakespeare's approach to love. We have a quote from someone going back to the times of the Greeks, Virgil. We've heard this before, love conquers all things, let us too surrender to love. Isn't that beautiful? Love conquers all things, let us too surrender to love. Let me translate what those words mean. If you have a base, animalistic, visceral tendency or attraction, just go with it. Let that guide you. Let your animal instincts be in charge and in control of the choices you make in life. That's a poetic way of saying that. Let us surrender to love. And we see this more and more in our own society. The way we feel, the way we love, it's not just an expression of an emotion. It's not something I could even possibly think of maybe curbing or, or having some level of discipline if it's not the time or place. But it creates reality and it creates morality. If that's the way you feel, so then how could anyone tell you otherwise? The, the phrase falling in love, where does that phrase come from? Ever think of that? Falling in love. To say that phrase is apicorsis. That's heresy. That's buying into the Greek view of love. That's buying into Cupid just shooting arrows. That's buying into Shakespeare that love is blind. Falling in love means I don't have control over the way I feel. It just happens. Oh, I just, oh, I'm in a ditch. Or, wow, I'm in love. Okay, look at that. It's glorifying the animal. It's taking something that we as human beings, according to Torah philosophy, we strive our entire lives to overcome, to conquer, to transcend those things that are pulling me in different directions, to focus on yashros and trying to do the right thing. Western civilization has taken the animal 
and has made it the most beautiful, artistic form of humanism you could possibly imagine. In the, in the words of Aaron Feldman, Aaron Feldman was speaking at a convention and he was bemoaning society in general and how it has an influence even on the, uh, the Torah world. He said, we are all subject to a subtle and ongoing indoctrination in Western civilization's view of life as censured, centered on man and his attainment of physical pleasure. Nearly every advertisement contains the suggestion that the purchase of a particular product will assure us of the satisfaction of physical desires, of pleasure, or of personal recognition and importance. That's the Western civilization's view of love. I have with me a safer that goes back decades. And I think, in my humble opinion, this is a safer that has really formulated, at least in part, the whole Western civilization's view on love. Sleeping Beauty. I want to read to you. The Goldstein is saying, why did I give up Night Seder for this? <laughs> we know the basic storyline that... Um, Actually, I forgot the basic storyline, but the, the, the most important part of the story is uh, she's dancing with her friends, the animals, somewhere in the forest. In a mossy glen, Briar Rose danced and sang with her friends, the birds and animals. She told them of her beautiful dream about meeting a tall, handsome stranger and falling in love. Falling in love because he's tall and handsome. A handsome young man came riding by. When he heard Briar Rose singing, he jumped from his horse and hid in the bushes to watch her. Then he reached out to take her hand. Briar Rose was startled. Quote, I didn't mean to frighten you, the young man smiled, but I feel like we've met before. Always a good line to start off with. I feel like we've met before. Briar Rose felt very happy. She and her admirer gazed into each other's eyes. The young man didn't know that she was Princess Aurora, and she didn't realize that he was Prince Philip, to whom she had been betrothed many years before. But there you have it. Love at first sight, because he's tall and handsome, and they're gazing into each other's eyes. And then at the very, very end of the book, when uh, she's awoken from her spell, now everyone awoke smiling, the king and queen were overjoyed to see Aurora again, and wedding plans were soon made. The good fairies were blissful too. It all had ended just the way it should, happily ever after. And it ends happily ever after when they're 22, never sharing a word of, of content, but just seeing each other in the forest and eventually waking her up from her spell, and happily ever after, it'll be blissful from now on. So how do we define love? What is the Torah definition of Ava? There's a great line from the Chazanish. I'm not going to translate it literally, but Hamevin Yovin. The Chazanish wrote, or he said, Mashaheim Korim Ava Anachnu Korim Kores. What they call love in the secular world, we call disgusting. That's the difference. 
Now, it doesn't mean to say, chas v'sholem, that we don't believe in love, we don't believe in attraction. Of course we do. And that's a whole discussion unto itself. HaKadosh Baruch Hu created these feelings not to be denied, but to be channeled in the proper relationship and to be elevated. But it's not the ava, it's not the love of the secular world. Many people misquote Rabbi Dessler. Rabbi Dessler said in the famous piece that if you look at the word ava, so you have the Aramaic word hav in the middle. Hav means to give. So people say that Reb Dessler defines love as giving. That's not what he said. He was talking about a way to achieve love, and we'll speak about that more momentarily. But he was not defining love. Love is not the action of giving. What is love? What is that emotion? It comes from the Rambam. The Rambam, when he's talking about the mitzvah of Avas Hashem, we were commanded to have a, a love for HaKadosh Baruch Hu, which parenthetically is so unique. If you ask most Jews, let's say they're not religious, they don't have much exposure to Torah, is it a Jewish thing to love God? I think most Jews would say, I don't think so, I think it's more of a Christian thing. Now where do the Christians get it from, obviously? From the Torah. The Haftas Hashem Lekachem. What other religion, what other philosophy, what other culture before Torah had any concept of loving the Boreolam, of having a, an emotional connection with the creator of the universe? And to the contrary, what other civilization had the idea that the Boreolam has a limitless love for humanity? It didn't exist. This was a ray of light that was brought into the world through Avram, through the Torah. It, it was a whole different, radically different view of, of life and Hashem and the human being. We're actually commanded to love Hashem, and Hashem loves us. There's a relationship. It's not just, you shall be obedient. There's a relationship. I have to share with you a story. I was driving home, I forgot from where. But I, I was actually thinking about this idea as I was driving down 3rd Avenue to my house. And I was thinking, it's really an amazing thing. It's so unique, going through this whole thought process. And before I pull up in my driveway, I see Rabbi Wilkatch is pacing back and forth in his driveway. It's probably like 10.30 at night. So I roll down my window, say hello. He walks over. He's in the middle of davening. And so for future reference, if you see Rabbi Wilkach in his driveway at 10.30 at night, he's probably <laughs> davening Marev. No need to be concerned. That's before we had a later Marev, I guess. He comes over, though. How does he tell me he's in the middle of davening as I'm thinking about this interesting mitzvah of Abbas Hashem? He says, That's where he was in Kriyashma. You, you have to notice these things in life. You have to pay attention. Because every once in a while, Hashem, a little tap on the back, you have to feel it, you have to enjoy that embrace. But they do come around. So the Rambam, when he speaks about the mitzvah of Avas Hashem, he has the very fundamental question of, How do you get there? How do you love Hashem? How do you have an awe or reference of Hashem? So the Rambam writes, When a person takes the time to look at the world around him, 
to appreciate the, the Chachma, the depth, the wisdom of all of creation. And you'll see, if you know anything about any part of life in biology, you'll see there's endless wisdom there. The locates, with no boundaries. So what's my emotional response to seeing that depth of wisdom? Automatically I love and I want to praise and glorify and I have this overwhelming desire to know Hashem in a more profound way. Just like David writes in Tehillim, my soul is thirsting for Hashem, the living God. The definition of love according to the Rambam is a taiva gedola, this, this overwhelming, beautiful desire, Based on what? Based on lust, based on physical attraction, based on music, based on yediyah. It's based on knowledge. When I see you and I appreciate you, and appreciate can mean one of two things. It could either mean I appreciate all the wonderful things you do for me. That's appreciation in the Hakara Satov sense. But appreciate could also mean I get you. I see you. I understand you. I'm so moved by your chesed. I'm so taken by your, by your generosity. I'm so inspired by your kavanah and tefillah. When I see you, and therefore the idea creates a taiva. Love is based on knowledge. If I don't know you yet, I can't love you. Rabbi Noah Weinberg used to say, there's no such thing as love at first sight. There's infatuation at first sight. That's taiva. Love is only through knowledge. That's why when Hashem is, is, so to speak, contemplating whether or not I should share the news with Avraham that I'm going to destroy the cities of Stamva and Morah, he says, I can't keep it from him. I have to tell him, Kiyadativ, literally, because I know him, and I know that he is a Shariatzavis Bonavis Beso Acharov, that he's instructing his family and his household after the ways of Hashem. So how could I keep this information from someone who's so close to me? Kiyadativ, for I've known him. What does Rashi say? What's the definition of the translation of Yadativ? Rashi says, Loshen Chiba. Yadativ is an expression of love. Real knowledge is real love. That's our definition of Ava. So how do you know the difference? Is it infatuation? Is it good old-fashioned taiva, or is it ava? The litmus test is, you have to ask yourself the question. If a buffalo would feel the exact way I'm feeling right now, that's probably not ava. If a monkey could speak in poetry, or he would write a song about this particular feeling, that's probably not ava. And the majority of the quote-unquote love songs that are out there, they're not love songs. They're songs expressing base animalistic desires. Rarely do you find a love song. I had the opportunity, I've mentioned this before, to drive a long distance, many hours, with a very hush of person. And um, to my surprise... He put on a CD, and I was assuming it would be Shweki or Mordechai ben David or something, and it turns out it was none other than 
I'm spacing out his name, but I could sing the song. John Denver, you've all heard the story before. <laughs> and there's even a love song there, and I was a little bit surprised, and he told me, he said, Noah, listen closely. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. So there, there, there could be such a thing out there. It's, it's rare and, and hard to find. But that's our definition of love, and I think here lies the distinction between the Torah's perspective on Ava and what the world calls love. That distinction is the Mishnah and Perkeyovo, source number 12, and we've heard this before perhaps, but this is really the point of difference. Kol ava badavar, all love that's dependent on something, something external. Batal davar ava, once that thing is removed, the love is no longer there. V'she'ena tuluya badavar, any love that's not based on something external, then Eina Betela Laolam, that love will never be nullified. Laolam means forever. And like we always say, real love, a Kesher Shalkayama, a real connection, is not limited to this world. A real connection is forever. Eina Betela Laolam. And that's why we don't say at a Jewish wedding, till death do we part, because even death is not a separation. The Torah view of love is Ava bedavar. The secular world is as long as you're beautiful, as long as you're wealthy, as long as I'm getting something from you, then I love you. If I feel like I'm not getting something from you anymore, then the love quickly fades. It's not surprising that we have about 50% um, divorce rate in America. And that's not to ever look at any particular couple anywhere in America, Jew or non-Jew, and say, oh, the reason why they got divorced is because they didn't understand what love really means. No, there's some good reasons sometimes. It's actually a mitzvah if it's the right situation. However, when you live in a culture where we're bombarded, we're attacked, the onslaught of this foreign definition of Ava is so overwhelming, so we begin to buy into that culture. It's all about me. And if I feel I'm not getting my share, so then, batla davar, batla ava. But the Pharisee Yisrael, one of the great commentators in the Mishnah, is, is his explanation here, he says as follows. He explains that, If there's anything else besides me and you, if there's any other reason why I'm in this relationship, besides the Kesha that we have, he says, for example, I'm getting something from the relationship. He says, Nimza Shirak Ohe Ves Atzmo. What's really happening here is you're just loving yourself. We all love the same thing. You know what that is? We love love. We love that feeling. And therefore, if I can get that feeling from you or from an experience or from a philosophy, so then I love it, but really, says the Tefer Yisrael, I'm really loving myself. There's a famous story that's told over in the name of Rabbi Salanter, it's told over in the name of Rabbi Rucham Levovitz, and it's told over in the name of the Kotzke Rebbe. I don't know who actually said this, maybe nobody ever said it, but it's still true. And the story is, whoever it was went over to a, to a young man who was really enjoying his fish, it was grilled salmon with dill sauce, and it was delicious, and he was really getting into it. So let's call it the Kotzker, why not? Kotzker Rebbe said, why are you eating the fish? So the young man looked up and he said, with full mouth, I love it, I love fish. Kotzker said back, 
You don't love fish. You love yourself. And you like the way you feel when you eat fish. If you really liked fish, you wouldn't catch it from the stream and kill it and fry it. So a lot of the love that we experience, or at least we're told what love is, it's, it's love of oneself. I love the way I feel in this particular situation. I read recently a story about Rishlomo Zalman Arabach. This was the, in, a, in a sefer, Bayis Hamanucha, by Ramosha Stern. He said he was once with Rishlomo Zalman Arabach, and they were walking home from yeshiva together to the house of the, the Arabach house. And it was a very windy day, so his beard was kind of all over the place, and the payas were flying. So when they got to the front door, Shlomo Zalman did this. Made sure he was all put together, the beard. This is, he'd been married now 50 years. And he turned to Bishtar and he said, I have to look presentable for the Rebetzin. <laughs> for crying out loud. <laughs> you would think after 50 years of marriage, right? Was that the, the Fiddler on the Roof song? That was only 25 years. 25 years, I've washed your clothes, and you're asking me what love is. The answer is, even 50 years, I want to be presentable. Another story I read a while ago, Rabbi Scheinberg was married for 80 years. How many people do you know who are married for 80 years? And uh, one person who was just observing one conversation between Rabbi Scheinberg and Rebetzin, Scheinberg came in, and as Rebetzin was sitting there in the chair, he turns to her and he says, How are you feeling? And she says back, Weak. How are you? Scheinberg says, I'm also weak, but when I see you, you give me strength. Rebetzin said back to Scheinberg, I was going to say the same thing. This is 80 years into marriage, they're well into their 90s. But you know, there's a love, it should be expressed. I had the opportunity to, uh, to meet with Shmuel Kamenetsky. Just briefly, he was here in Florida for a conference, and we schmoozed for half an hour. One question I, I wanted to, to get clarity on is a question that many people ask. Husband and wife, on one hand, it's so healthy to show affection in front of children, talking nicely to each other, showing respect. And there's no greater way of teaching than actually being that person yourself. However, based on, on Sneas, the idea of any physical affection in front of children is usually something we avoid. So I was asking Rishmuel Kamenetsky, is there ever a time or place, even once in a while, a little something, just to, to show the children that, that, that there's a real love here? And uh, he, he answered me, there's, there's many ways of showing there's real love without any physical affection in front of the children, smiling and, and talking nicely and with respect. And again, I asked the question, but is there ever a time where... And again, he said, there are many ways of showing... Okay, I got the message. Now we're walking together down the hallway in this very nice hotel, and uh, he's asking around, have you seen the Rebetzin? I guess he wasn't with his wife for a little while, an hour or two. And as they're walking, the door opens. In comes the Rebetzin with her entourage. And Shmuel turns to her. This is his face. Oh, I was looking for you. Being able to share love, being able to, to, to tell somebody, to, to make it clear where it's not just, of course you know I love you, we've been married for 25 years. 
But it, it, it's a constant thing. It's on my radar. It's on my mind. I, I'm trying to do it. And I feel part of your situation. Ishto kagufa. We feel that, that we're one. That's the famous story. Think of all the Gedola Yisrael we've been quoting here. These are our role models. Ari Levine, he went to the doctor with his wife because her foot was hurting. And the famous line was, he said, the doctor, our foot is hurting. It's a whole different world. It's not her foot, but I'm not myself because I know she's in pain. And I think with this understanding of Ava and seeing these examples of Ava, we could understand the following question. It says that Yaakov agreed to work for Rachel for seven years. Why he chose seven years, that was his own doing. And if I was Yaakov, I would have said, you know what, let's make a deal. I'll work solid for 30 days and then we can call it a day. Why do you say seven years? There are Kabbalistic explanations given for that. But that was his choice. And the Torah testifies, V'yavod Yaakov b'rachel shanim. He worked for Rachel for seven years. But it was in his eyes, just like a few days, because of his love for her. So he worked for seven years, but he viewed it as only a couple of days because of his love for her. If anything, it should be the exact opposite. When you can't wait for school to be over, and there's only 103 days left, and you're counting down every day, every second, so it, it feels like forever. What is the Torah telling us? Because of his love for her, seven years felt like a few days. Comes along the Malbim, and he says, such a beautiful pshat. He says, It was because the type of love he had for Rachel, it wasn't avas cheshik, it wasn't coming from a, an animalistic or physical source. Because when you have a cheshik for something, I'm starving. That's a classic example of avas a cheshik. I just want to eat something. I need to be satiated. So then every minute as you're looking at your clock, it seems like it's forever. Yaakov loved Rachel because of Kishron Maaseha, because he understood and appreciated who she was. And that's why it says, because of his love, a real love, a love based on seeing who you are and recognizing you and appreciating you, that's a love where, of course I want to marry you. But it's not coming from a selfish pursuit. It's coming from a source of, I want to do the right thing. I want to be connected to you in the right way in the right time. That's why it went by only a few days. I think this also helps us understand the idea of commanding love. And this is a famous question. How could Hashem command me to love you? The famous Pesach we say, we quit it all the time. Have to love your fellow as yourself. I am Hashem. If I don't like vanilla ice cream, and I only like chocolate ice cream, so what's going to change my mind? Thou shall like vanilla ice cream. So I still don't like it. How do you command me to love somebody? So again, if you take the secular view of love, where it's basically you're hungry for something, you can't command me to be hungry. You can't command me to feel that I want to taste the vanilla ice cream versus chocolate ice cream. In the Torah's view, though, it's a whole different attitude. 
Hashem's not commanding you to feel that you want something. What is the commandment? Take a look at the Rambam. The Rambam says, L'fikach, in source number 17, second paragraph, L'fikach tzorech l'saper b'shivcho, because we're commanded, we're instructed to love our fellow Jew, therefore we have to speak about them, we have to praise them, I have to be as careful with their money as I would be with my own money. And just like I want my own honor and prestige, I want that for them as well. What's the Rambam leaving out? He's leaving out emotion. He says, because the Torah instructs us to love our fellow as ourself, therefore... You have to praise them, you have to do things for them, you have to treat their money like your money. I would have just said, therefore, you have to love them like yourself. The Rambam seems to be focused on the actions involved, not so much the feeling. And I remember seeing years ago in a particular Sefer, they wanted to suggest that according to the Rambam, the mitzvah of loving our fellow Jew is nothing about feeling. It's just action. Based on this very question, how could you command love? How could you tell me I have to feel something? I don't. So that could be the motivation of the Rambam where he says, no, the mitzvah of love isn't to really feel the love. It's to do actions for people or to care about their property. But that's not what the Rambam is saying. And that's not the majority opinion. The majority of opinion, like we find in the Mesil Shisharim, the Ramchal writes, the mitzvah of loving your fellow is, this is the end of 19, Kamocha bli shum hefrish. I love him mamish like myself. Kamocha bli chilukim, without any distinction. Bli tachbulos or mezimos. I'm not playing any games. I'm not trying to take advantage of him. Kamocha mamish. I love him like I love myself. It's a hargasha. It's a feeling. It's an emotion. It's not just commanding me to do things. So how do I create an emotion? So that's where Reb Dessler comes into play. Reb Dessler never defined love as giving, but he did teach us the way to achieve love. He says the way you have an emotional connection to somebody is through giving to them. Giving is not just the, 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 the response of love, it creates love. And there's a story in The Seven Habits by Stephen Covey. And I... Uh, I quote this to show you that it's modern wisdom, but we'll also look at a source that's clear. We had this way before Stephen Covey. Stephen Covey tells a story of a, a man that approaches him and he says, I have to share with you, my wife and I just don't have the same feelings for each other we used to have. I guess I, just, I don't love her anymore and she doesn't love me. What do I do? So Stephen answered, Love her. I, I just said, I don't love her anymore. I don't think she loves me either. What am I supposed to do? And again, he responds, love her. So, I don't get it. How do you do that? I don't understand. The feeling of love isn't there. And Stephen says, then love her. If the feeling isn't there, that's a good reason to love her. But how do I love her when I don't love her? So he explained, my friend, love is a verb. Love is a verb. It's an action. Now, with the Torah perspective, that's not the definition of love, but that's the way you achieve love. The more you give to any cause, 
the more I contribute to any, 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 any purpose, the more I give to a human being, the more of an attachment, the more I'm engaged, the more of a love there is. And this we find in the Urcha Sadiqim. Urcha Sadiqim says, how do, you, how do you love somebody? How do you create an emotion that's not there? Very simple. You give to that person. You respect that person. You try to look for the good in that person. The more I'm able to act as if I love you, and the giving could be an expression of love, but more than that, the giving creates love. Try to see the good in people, because again, our definition of love is not just an animalistic feeling, but it's recognizing who you are. It's seeing you, it's appreciating you, and one way to do that is by giving to you. That's how I'm connecting myself to you. I speak to people with respect, with dignity, with love. What's the greatest thing I could give to you? What we've established so far is that the Western view of love and the Torah view of love are very different. Western civilization is it's based on external things, more of what I'm receiving. The Torah view is it's not based on anything else but me and you. The definition of love, says the Rambam, is I see and appreciate you and therefore I have a taivikadola. I have this yearning, I have this longing to connect with you because I get you. How do I, how do I inspire that? How do I bring that out? Says the Orcha Sadikim, through giving. Through doing the verb of loving, that creates the noun of love. What's the, the, the most profound thing I could give to anybody in my life? See, think of all the, I could give time, I could give effort, I could give gifts. I think the most profound thing I could give to anybody is myself. If I'm able to, to show a real interest in you, and I'm interested in what you're interested in, I want to be part of your world. I'm not just asking you how your day was to be Yotze. I have my checklist. When she walks in, you say, good, hello. Hi, how are you? How was your day? How was your day today? If I'm interested in you, then I'm giving you myself. And there's a psychological world that every psychologist must use at least five times a week. This is part of the rule book for, for therapists and psychologists. What is that word, Jonathan? With a V? You're fired. <laughs> vulnerable. Everyone loves to speak about, you have to be vulnerable. But what does that mean in practical terms? I have to be real. I have to be real with you. I'm not just giving you something else that's external to me, but I'm giving you myself. It's hard to do when you're mad at somebody, and it's hard to do when you're frustrated with something, and it's hard to do when I'm annoyed at the way you're treating me. And sometimes the answer is, I, you have to speak up. You have, to, you have to share your emotions. But sometimes the answer is, you have to do the verb of loving. You have to give, you have to give yourself. I want to share with you, we'll end with this, an amazing line from Rav Cook. Rav Cook is speaking here in an essay in the Oros. What is the, the disease of our generation? Now he wrote this, he passed away in 1935. So he probably wrote this about 100 years ago or more. But I think it's just as true today as it ever was. Says Rav Cook, Hatarbus hazmanis 
the issue of our time that I look around the world and I see it's so pervasive, it's such a problem. It's based on kfira, a lack of belief. People don't believe anymore. And nowadays, the reason why people don't believe, it's not because we have philosophies or we have reasons why, it's just because I'm doing this. Oh, oh, we're distracted. That's kfira. But the second thing that Cook says is the issue of our time is sinna, is hatred. We don't respect each other, we don't love each other, we don't appreciate each other. He says, A lack of amuna and a lack of ava rip away life. How do we overcome this epidemic? How do we cure the disease? We have to explode the source. We have to take from those infinite wellsprings of amuna and ava. They're both inherent in the neshama. We have to take from those, those otros and bring them out. He says, that's why you have to learn Kabbalah. That'll be for a different discussion. <laughs> but but Rav Kook is telling us, this is something that's, that's a problem throughout the world. It's something that we have to address in our relationships with our children, with our spouse, with our parents. Ava is a taiva gedola because I see you, but I have to allow myself to see you. And the way I see you, the way I open my eyes to our relationship, is by loving you with the verb. And the verb creates the noun. Have a wonderful evening.